our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. Before I get started, I would like to thank the reformed members of the channel. Howler's mom, Tina Mead, Seven, Les Crispin, Tammy Slayton, C.A.G., Denise S., Through Scrutiny, Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Norman D.W., Chrissy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's niece. If you would like to learn how to become a member of the channel or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, those links can be found down below. Also, if you are new here and enjoy what you are hearing or you have been here and haven't done so yet, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share and comment not only does it help the channel out but it also reminds you of every time i upload a video and while i've got your attention for a few more moments here in the introduction if you are a podcast listener back to ashes is now on spotify and apple podcast every time i upload a video here to youtube the episodes will immediately be sent over to spotify and apple which will be immediately available i hope you all enjoy a special shout out to ad large for allowing this to happen all right you all you know what time it is it is time to go back to ashes for once we arise from the ashes we are a bigger brighter stronger and a happier person in the morning so sit back relax kick back grab a snack or tuck in and get warm and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled true let's not meet stories right after this intro and ad will play i'll read the first story and ad will play and after that there will be no more ads within this video This happened while I was an undergraduate student. It was summer and I recently moved out of the dorms. I was excited for the freedom, but most excited to have our family dog come live with me. He was my best friend and the worst part of college was being away from him. I was the first to move into the house out of my friends. However, they would come over to pregame before we would head out to the bars. One night after drinking, and shenanigans, we stumbled our way back to the house. Me, being fairly drunk, headed off to bed with my dog trotting behind me. I left my friends to sleep on the couch. In my room, I had my bed against the wall with the door. The foot of the bed faced the door. The light switch was next to the door above the foot of my bed. My dog's bed was on the opposite side of the room. He had a good view of the whole room. He was allowed on my bed, but he really loved his dog bed and preferred to sleep there. I don't know what time this happened, due to sleepiness and beer, but the light in my room turned on. I sleepily rolled over and just see this big mannish figure standing over me. The next thing I hear was my dog going absolutely crazy, barking, growling, just like incredibly fierce. The figure sprints out of my room with my dog on his tail. That's the last I ever saw of him. My friend, who was sleeping in the living room, was like, A man just ran out of here. We had no idea who he was. We didn't call the cops until the next morning. We should have called them that night, but we were young, dumb, buzzed, and I was underage. We did notice the next morning my iPad and wallet were missing. A friend found my ID on the street later that week. But we can't figure out why did he come into my room and turn the light on. He passed my friends to get into my room and the light would be seen from where they were sleeping. The one thing I do know is that my dog stopped whatever worst bad things could have happened. That evening when we returned to bed, he jumped up on the bed and laid next to me. I knew he would never let anything happen to me. So, strange mysterious man in my house, I hope I don't see you again. Oh, and I don't think my dog will want to see you again either, because you won't escape next time.
It was a long time ago, before cell phones were prevalent, and I was a mom in my early 30s who had just driven our kids to the pediatrician. The Mackin, George's doctor's office, was an hour away from our home, and I was just taking the two youngest of my three, then ages one and three years old, to our scheduled appointment. Because we live so far away, their office always gave us at least two appointments of the day, and we were very grateful. The doctor's office had just built a new building off of a fresh spur of the highway, so the location was quite isolated in every direction, but a very nice facility compared to his old spot by the hospital there. His new building was also pretty far back on the new lot, and my car, a black Jeep Cherokee, we had owned for two years, was one of only four or five cars in the parking lot when I arrived. I parked near the front door, removed the kids from their car seats, and for the next hour or so we waited, then saw the doctor, paid, and finally exited back outside. Mine was the only car left in the lot as I loaded the children into their car seats for our trip home, but as the receptionist locked the front glass doors, my car somehow wouldn't start when I turned the key. There was just an odd clicking noise. Gathering the children once again, I knocked on the door until someone allowed us back in and asked to borrow their phone to call a nearby garage for service. I found one of the phone books and the man said that he would come but that it might take him a bit. So I told him my location, left to go back out to the car, rolled down all the windows and loaded the children back into their seats once more as we waited. Soon we watched as all the lights were turned out in the building again and everyone left, their cars departing one by one from behind the building somewhere, leaving us now completely alone in the dark parking lot. As it was still light, I spent a lot of time trying to tend to the children, digging through our car for snacks and a bottle making sure they weren't getting too hot, etc. Although the service station attendant said that it was probably going to be quite a while, I was pleasantly surprised when a truck pulled into the empty parking lot pretty soon and a man got out of his pickup, smiled and nodded to me, and said he was going to raise the hood. He was middle-aged and a bit scruffy, but quite frankly, many gas station attendants sometimes looked that way, especially at the end of the day and I was grateful when he began doing something under the hood almost immediately. I sat down again in the driver's seat with the door open, waiting for him to tell me to try the engine. But he seemed to be taking a long time checking the connections, and I longed for him to just grab jumper cables, yet he never did. Without getting out of the car, I asked him what he thought was wrong, and he said, Oh, it's just a loose wire, not the battery and continue whatever he was doing. I couldn't see his face at all from where I was sitting, but his hands were slightly visible through the long horizontal slip between the windshield and the raised hood as we waited. More than once he said that it was merely a loose wire, and if I would just come here really quick, he would show me which one it was so it would never happen again. I remember kind of smiling and shaking my head, saying that sadly there was no reason to show me anything, as I didn't know a damn thing about cars. I just thanked him and continued to stay in the driver's seat, again just waiting for the inevitable sign to try and start the ignition that was most likely surely coming at any moment. At one point, I remember thinking that he was definitely flirting as he spoke, but I was trying above all to be polite and kind as he was indeed helping us. We were hot and tired and miserable, and truthfully, I was distracted with the kids. Oddly enough, he was starting to sound a little frustrated with me, because I wouldn't come up and look at the engine. I remember thinking that I certainly didn't want to make him mad, where he left us there all alone, with the sun sinking so quickly. And then the strangest thing happened. Another truck suddenly pulled into that desolate parking lot. And as it did, this nice guy working underneath my hood suddenly slammed it shut, ran to his truck, started it, and drove away very quickly, without even saying a word of goodbye. 
I was both confused and a little anxious when he did this, because I didn't know who was now arriving. I even remember feeling a little frightened that he had suddenly left me there alone with two little ones, defenseless. Why wouldn't he at least stay and speak to whoever was parking next to me now? It certainly seemed the southern gentleman thing to do. I looked around and was very aware, once again, that there was no visible cars on the road, no homes or businesses nearby, and the sun was continuing to set very quickly. As this new, also unmarked, pickup pulled in next to me, I got out of the car once again, this time more apprehensively. Upon exiting, though, he immediately introduced himself, and his name and voice seemed to match who I had spoken to on the phone much earlier. He then actually called me by my name, apologized for being so late, and finally smiled and stared towards the road, pointing and asking who the man was that was just leaving so suddenly. Relieved and unfazed, I just smiled back in surprise and told him, Well... I don't know. I thought all this time he was you. And we both laughed slightly. As he then grabbed jumper cables, walked to the front of my car, raised the hood, and started to work. I immediately sat back in the driver's seat once more, suddenly grateful that, with luck, that air conditioner would be blasting on full force shortly, and once again, checking on the children. While listening for the familiar words, try it. I had my back completely turned towards the children when he surprised me by suddenly coming to the driver's side door. In the strangest voice, he said, Um, ma'am, is this yours? And when I looked into his hands, he was holding a long, thin, dagger-like looking device that was about a foot and a half in length. It appeared to be very old and covered with reddish rust, yet on one end... It had tiny circular small finger holes, as if it was a mix of a long thin sword and scissors, oddly combined. I remember being amazed but not frightened, and I asked where he had found them. Under the hood, he replied. I said, just matter-of-factly, that I had never seen them before. But how weird is it that those things had somehow been stuck and undiscovered in my car for all those years? And shook my head in surprise. He continued to stand there and stare at me, unbelievingly. But he looked oddly pale too, like he couldn't find the words to speak for a bit, just continuing to stare at the unusual object. Honestly, I didn't care one bit about it. All I could think of was getting the car going, letting me pay him, and the cost of course, and leaving. He didn't say anything else, just quickly set them on the curb, started his truck, and then signaled for me to start the Jeep. And when it immediately caught, my three-year-old cheered. Grateful, I quickly turned on the air conditioner, full blast, rolled up all the windows, aimed the air vents back towards the back seat, and reached for my purse to pay out. I stood up and took a few steps to meet him so I could hear the amount now owed. With both of our vehicles running, he came back around to the driver's side, but instead of handing me the bill, irritated me a bit by walking right past me and picking up that weird object once more. Ma'am, he said slowly, I want you to look at these one more time and held them out for closer inspection. This time, I move a bit closer and actually really looked. In his hands, the item still appeared incredibly large, possessing an almost bayonet-looking quality except for the strangely small two loops on one end. I had never seen anything like it and told him so. As he held it, he spoke quietly and slowly to me, as if trying desperately to make me understand something that was somehow still going over my head. These weren't hidden somewhere in the engine, ma'am. They hadn't been there very long at all, cause they were sitting right on top. They must have been just put there. I shook my head no and half smiled as I said, 
<laughs> but they're obviously very old and rusty. To which he pointed more closely and said, Yeah, but see how sharp they are? These look like they've just been sharpened. And when I looked down, he was right. The long, skinny, dagger-like shape was unusual, but by far the oddest quality was just how sharp it appeared to be. The edges at the tip, where the rust had been removed, were gleaming silver. As I paid him, his final words to me were, Ma'am, I don't know what was about to happen here, but I'm really glad I pulled up when I did. He quietly thanked me when taking the payment, told me that I probably needed to call the police when I got home, and then asked me where I wanted the item. I didn't want to touch it, didn't want to take it at all, but I released the back window so he could place it inside. We both then left the lot together, him turning one way, me turning another, towards the small winding highway that would lead me home, still an hour away. I did, indeed, contact the Mackin police the moment that we arrived home and got the children inside safely. But although they listened politely, they declined when I offered to bring the scissor-like thing to them later. The officer I spoke to said that they sounded as if they were specialized surgical shears, from my description and measurement on the phone, which I found quite disturbing, as you can imagine. I remember wondering how he would even know that, why he would say that. I had tried so carefully not to touch any of the surfaces, hoping they might be able to lift prints or test it for blood if they wanted, but the story seemed to bore him a bit and he didn't seem interested. His attitude insinuated that, as there was no longer an emergency, it was of no importance now. At the very end of the call, as if to wind things up, he did say that it sounded as if I was very lucky and that I might want to keep the shears for a few days, just in case someone from his office got back with me later. But that was all. I wrapped them carefully in newspaper and placed them in the brick storage unit behind our house, and there they remained for several more years, untouched, until we moved away and I finally, not wanting to bring them across several states, reluctantly threw them in the trash. Around that time, though, if you look through old news reports, women were going missing all over Georgia. Some bodies were eventually found, but others remain missing to this very day. I have often wondered what would have happened if the service station attendant hadn't arrived when he did. If my children would still have a mother, if I would still have my son and daughter, if I would have missed all these years with them, I guess I'll never know, but I learned something very important about myself that day. I had always felt that I was pretty aware of my surroundings, pretty good at reading people and staying safe, but because I was exhausted and tired and hot and stranded in a different city, my common sense and intelligence simply left me for a bit and wasn't working at that time. And many of my friends and family still think that our car trouble that day and my lack of awareness could easily have cost us our lives. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. This happened when I was 10 years old. I was at a ski resort with my dad stepmom and three sisters when this happened my two sisters dad and stepmom were still out skiing but me and my sister ava got cold so we went back to the hotel to get some food we sat at the restaurant in the hotel until my stepmom came down we asked her if she could hold the table so we could go up to the room quickly so that we could drop off our ski jackets so, take the elevator, and once we get off, we start to walk into our room. That's when I hear someone behind me go, Hey, 
keep in mind, we were both about 11 at the time. I didn't think he was talking to us, so I just ignored it. We walked into our room, but before we could close the door, the man stepped in the doorway. He was tall, probably about six foot, and looked pretty old, maybe. About his early 60s or late 50s, and he was wearing the hotel staff uniform, but just without the logos. The thing that raised a big red flag was that he was wearing black surgical gloves. He says, Hey, I want to talk to you. We both spin around, caught off guard. Ava says, Oh, us? He goes, Yeah, you. I was wondering if you could grab a pitcher for me and come into my room to pour some water for me. Our parents always told us never trust strangers, and we already got a bad vibe from him, so we politely declined. His tone then got a bit annoyed, and he said, It will just take a second. Can you please just pour me some water in my room? At this point, we already knew this wasn't right, so we said no again. This conversation went back and forth for about three minutes until he tried to walk into our room. Our instincts kicked in at this point, and I ran towards the door and said, Sir, we are good, and I slammed the door on him. Ava and I sat in the hotel room for about ten minutes, panicking on how we were going to leave to talk to our parents because we had left our phones downstairs. We looked out of the peephole, and he was gone, so we bolted down the hallway and ran back down the stairs to the restaurant. Once we told our stepmom, she was mortified and went to office security. They interviewed us and asked for his description because they didn't have any cameras in the hallway. We gave them the description and they told us that nobody with that description worked there and that most of them were young, broke college students. At this point, it really set in that if I had accepted and just helped him, I could have died. So, everyone teach your kids stranger danger and creepy hotel guy, let's not ever meet again. I live quite close to my school and primary, so my older sister and I would walk home because my parents worked. My sister is five years older than me, so my parents trusted her enough to leave us home alone instead of going to after-school care. So one day, when I was in year three, I do believe, I was asked by my teacher to stay back at the end of school. I told my sister, and she said that she would just go home and wait there. I should also mention that the way home from school was pretty much along a main road all the way, so it should have been fine. I head back to my classroom and talk to the teacher. This takes about an hour and a half or so. After, I begin to head home, lugging around my bag that was almost the size of me. At this point, it was probably around 5. I'm only about half an hour away from home when I notice the white ute, or pickup, following me. At this age, like 6 or 7, you start being taught stranger danger and stuff like that. So it was still pretty fresh in my mind. The youth gave off suspicious vibes, and the street felt too empty. I remember it still being bright out, but this youth was the only car on the road. Even worse, it wasn't even on the road. It was on the side, moving slowly behind me. At this point, it was a red alarm in my young mind, as even then, I was pretty cautious of everything. I look back again, and this time, I think whoever was in there knew I was aware of them now. This was bad for them because I think they panicked. They were driving a little quicker now to close the gap. I was also getting more panicked now, too, than I remember thinking. There is a path between the next houses. It led to the backs of people's houses and then to the street next to mine. I walk a little faster, and I guess they notice, too. I remember them speeding up a little bit, but still keeping a gap. I quickly turn down between the houses and start running as soon as I think I'm out of their sight. I hear the ute go faster and then come to a stop. By now, I turn the corner and hid so they can't see me. 
I hear the door swing open, and I hope they don't follow. I hear someone stepping on the grass. They were following, and I'm panicking. Just then, a voice says that they should just leave and forget about it. They speed away, and I walk the rest of the way home. I don't remember if I told my parents or not after that. Now, you may be thinking what made me think of this now. Just a little while ago, I heard my parents talking about when a child porn website was shut down that ran out of the Gold Coast, Queensland, where I lived. I step in and ask them what they were talking about, and they said when I was a kid that it came out of the news that the police had taken down a huge child pornography website. I then went and searched this up. Turns out that the guy in charge of the website ran it out of the suburb I lived in. I got chills reading the article, remembering back. This all happened two years after the ban incident. 29 kids were saved from abuse that was featured on that website. It just really gives me chills that maybe the Ute guys were one of them. So, to the guys in that band following me, I hope you've been caught and are rotting away in prison. Hello everyone. So lately I've had some requests to finally share the story of the homeless man I accidentally took in as a tenant and the incidents that followed. I'm just saying in advance, this is a long one, but every detail is relevant. Please note, although everything I've documented is factual, the case has never been solved and has likely gone cold since this happened more than 10 years ago. So, back in 2007, I found myself working as a bartender at a, now closed, pub in my hometown. Not a job I particularly liked, but it paid the bills. At this time, they had hired a new kitchen manager that we all simply knew as Kearney. Kearney was a pleasant enough man, mostly keeping to himself, but always stayed late to help the barmen do our closing duties, so we all liked him for that. New in town, Kearney had yet to find a place of permanent residence, and I had recently lost my tenant, so someone suggested he ask me. He was considerably older than the tenants I usually took in, but having had a streak of bad luck with tenants my own age, I thought an older man with a nice steady job maybe a shift in the right direction, so I agreed. Kearney wasted no time and followed me home that very same night. Only, he wasn't alone. Enter Lawrence, the boyfriend of Kearney. Honestly, I hadn't even realized he was gay up to that point, but was water off my back regardless. Looking back now, what really should have bothered me, though, was Lawrence's appearance. He looked like he had been sleeping on the street, rather appropriately, as I would later find out. So, Kearney moved in. Lawrence was there a lot, too, and it was easy to know when he was there due to his mobile ringtone sounding like the quacking of a duckling. Kearney had some habits that were rather noteworthy to this story. In particular, number one, he basically never closed his bedroom door, no matter what he was doing in there. It was always open. And number two, although he was a very heavy smoker, he never once smoked inside the house. So, Kearney had been living there for about two weeks when I had come down with an awful case of pink eye. This being highly contagious, I was given leave of absence from my bartending job and therefore decided to go wait it out at my sister's for a few days. Apparently, I didn't mind giving it to her. Sorry, sis. So, the day my sister was scheduled to come to pick me up, no, I couldn't drive yet. I took a casual stroll into the bar that myself and Ben, my good friend from high school, and at that time co-worker, had been building in my house, and something caught my eye. All of our liquor bottles were completely empty. Now, those who had been frequenting my house at that time would know that we weren't just talking about one or two bottles of brandy here, but bottles of whiskey, gin, vodka, schnapps, liqueurs, 
Basically, it was a fully stocked bar that could host a pretty big party without requiring much in the way of additions. So I called Kearney in, asking him what he knew about this, receiving feedback that Lawrence and he had been on a slight drinking binge. Those were the actual words he used. That had left me both furious about the thousands worth of stock they had just drunk out, but also slightly impressed that he was actually still alive, regardless. I said that I will be dealing with this upon my return. So I'm with my sister for a few days, and on Friday I get a call from the local police department asking me if I know a Conrad Schultz. Ironically enough, I didn't. They finally add that I will probably know him as Kearney and that I should probably come down to the station as they had just arrested his boyfriend trying to sell my camera equipment. So my sister rushes me back home where all of my camera equipment was on display at the police station. It's on this visit that I'm informed that Lawrence was actually a Navy SEAL who got dishonorably discharged before turning to a life of crime and now had a rap sheet the length of the Bible. The kicker was that both he and Kearney were actually homeless men who had met at the Salvation Army. So, Lawrence is in jail, and my sister drops me off at home, more or less the same time that Kearney gets home as well. Based on Kearney's account of what had happened, he had turned Lawrence in himself, as he couldn't allow Lawrence to do to me what he was trying to do. Although I had appreciated his sacrifice, I still told Kearney that he would have to go as well, having been the overall cause of all of this. However, not wanting to leave the homeless man, well, homeless, I gave him until the end of the month to make other arrangements. So, Monday comes, and having just completed a staff meeting, I walk home to encounter a very much free Lawrence sitting on the sidewalk across my house, watching it. I confront Lawrence as to why he's there, and he tries to apologize before begging for money. Rather out of character, really. I dismissed him without giving him a cent. Now I go back to the previous night. See, I had mentioned the staff meeting for a reason, as it was in that meeting where we had gotten a rather sizable list of liquor bottles that had gone missing from the stockroom, leaving us all suspecting each other. I, however would not have to wait long to figure out who the real culprit was, as a few days later, I opened the garbage bin in my kitchen to see the missing bottles, all empty and staring back at me. I decided to sit on this information for the time being, although I did photograph it, just in case I needed it for evidence later. I also called over Ben to inform him of the developments, as this was quickly becoming a detective game, we decided to enter Kearney's room to search for further evidence. Nothing of vast significance in there, with one exception. Two single photographs of Lawrence before he had turned into the homeless version of Lex Luthor or Charles Xavier. Actually, there were several of Lawrence's things still there, but as Lawrence had spent a lot of time there before the incident, I accepted this as normal. Now, I should also add that I had mentioned Lawrence's release to Kearney and had told him that if I even suspected that they were seeing each other again, I would throw him out of the house myself. Only a few days would pass before this came into play. On this particular night, I had been bartending again and Kearney had constantly been stopping by the bar to help himself to draft glasses half full of wine and half full of coke which he would go drink outside the restaurant. We confronted him about this, but as he correctly pointed out, he was still a manager. We had no right to tell him what he could or could not do. On his fourth trip, however, I had grown suspicious and decided to follow him outside, where I encountered Lawrence sitting there, sharing the half-coke, half-wine concoctions with Kearney. This really pissed me off. So the next day I returned to the restaurant with my photographic evidence that I handed over to the general manager, who was also kind of a friend of mine. Although I hadn't physically seen it, I had heard the confrontation through the office door when he fired Kearney. Kearney left, obviously upset, 
and apparently had no idea that I had been the one who had turned him in. So we had closed early that night and I was walking home, going past the high school. I saw Kearney coming from the opposite direction. He walked past me, literally only saying two words, I'm scared, before disappearing into the darkness. That would be the last time that I would ever physically lay eyes on Conrad Schultz. So we reached the final week before Kearney's eviction was to take place. Ben had come to stay with me for that duration, as we both wanted to monitor the situation and make sure that nothing else happens. It was in this week that Kearney's behavior suddenly changed. He was constantly smoking in his room, and his door was closed 24-7. In fact, neither Ben nor I caught so much as a peek of him in that entire last week, which we hadn't thought much of at that time. So the day of Kearney's eviction comes around, Ben had gone home for a few hours, and I finally hear Kearney's bedroom door open. Someone walks out of the room, opens the front door, and leaves. I follow him outside, but somehow he had already completely disappeared. What was left, though, was his house keys, indicating that he obviously wasn't planning to come back. I took a look at the keys, noticing something really strange. Although the correct keys were all on the keychain, there were also several that weren't mine. Why would he leave me the wrong keys? I remember myself thinking as I walked into his room. His room was a shock, not because of the state it was in. The two had broken his bed in an act of wild monkey sex, but I had known about that already. As I said, he never closed his damn door but more that he had literally left almost all of his belongings behind, with one exception. You guessed it, the two photos of Lawrence. Upon further investigation, I suddenly realized that all traces of Lawrence ever being there had completely vanished, with all of Kearney's stuff left behind. There was one thing of Lawrence left behind, though. His duckling ringtone, which it turned out hadn't been so much a ringtone as an actual duckling, which now strolled around casually in the vacant bedroom. We named him Neville. So Ben returns and gets updated about the developments, both of us thinking the way he left was rather weird. Of course, the whole thing had been weird. It was only when I asked the infamous question that this all became a conspiracy theory. Did you ever actually see Kearney in this last week? It was to our shock that we realized that neither of us had, completely putting puzzle pieces together. They're changing habits, Neville the duck, the wrong keys, only Lawrence's stuff being gone. It was to great discomfort that we both asked the question, who had really been living in our house this last week? During the next few days, Ben and I went on a mission, searching the town, crawling into drain pipes, trying to find any trace of Kearney's whereabouts. But they all added up to nothing. Conrad Schultz had simply vanished off the face of the earth. That wasn't the case with Lawrence, though. No, he was still around, having made some new homeless friends. We encountered him several times, begging on the streets. I asked him every time, Where's Kearney, Lawrence? but he just acted like he had never heard of him. The last time I would see Lawrence was across from work, attempting to break into a car. I'd called the police on him, and they had arrived rather quickly, arresting him on the spot. While he was being led away by the police, I shouted after him one last time. Where is he, Kearney? Lawrence. But he just ignored me and let the cops drag him away. The next day, I filed a police report, reporting Kearney as the missing person and suggesting that Lawrence may know something about it, but nothing ever came of it. So Lawrence, I don't know if you did something to Kearney or not, but if you did, let's not meet again. This happened about six months ago. So, a little backstory. The way my backyard is, it leads up to my garage. Backyard is more like a deck. Anyways, 
A few weeks prior to this creepy guy, there was lots of cops in my area. This is a low crime rate town. Nothing big ever happens here. Maybe one stabbing every three years and one shooting every five years. The cops were looking for this creepy guy. So one night, I'm home alone. I was playing some video games in the basement when I heard a loud bang outside near my garage. I go upstairs to investigate. I look around and my garage light is on. I think it's my girlfriend just getting home from work. So I'm standing there for about five minutes waiting for her to come through the garage door. Nothing. So I call my girlfriend and ask her if she's home. She tells me she won't be home for an hour. I'm in shock. I know I didn't leave that light on. I ended up calling the police. They came by and checked the garage. They told me someone was in there because everything was thrown everywhere. The cop that came said he would sit outside my house until my girlfriend got home. The girlfriend gets home. The cop waves goodbye. I thought maybe it was just some kids. My girlfriend goes to bed while I made some food. I ate and went out for a cigarette. I get out, light my smoke, and look towards my gate. Nothing I just thought to myself, my mind's playing tricks on me. I hear a noise at my side gate. I look over. There's some mid-forties guy just looking at me. I ask him, What the fuck are you doing? I think I was in shock. He then tries to open my gate. I threw my smoke at him ran in the house, and locked the door. I called the cops, told them what had happened. They came by again within five minutes. They told me no one was around but believed he was there because the gate was wide open. I haven't seen him since, but it sure as hell scared the shit out of me. Mid-40s creepy guy, I really hope the cops caught you. We moved into a house in the country about four months ago. Since we'd previously lived in an apartment, that means we needed to buy a lawnmower. Instead of pouring out $200 plus on the lawnmower when we have to move in a few years, we decided to hire someone to cut our grass. Initially, we went with a guy that my fiance used to work with, but $65 every two weeks starts to add up and I was looking for something cheaper. That brings me to Charles. Charles posted in my Facebook classified that he was looking for some lawns to cut this weekend, and he had a reputable company, so I sent him a message. Initially, Charles came off as nice. He asked for my address so he could stop by and give me an estimate. After stopping by my house, he sent me a message saying, Damn, sweetheart, you got a big porch. It made me kind of uncomfortable, but figured I was overreacting and started planning when he could come out. I told him my off days, but he assured me I didn't have to be home. I told him to come Wednesday. Wednesday morning, he messaged me. Are you home? I said no. Three hours later, are you home yet? I told him, no, I won't be home until after eight. Charles then informed me his tire had a flat and he could come tomorrow. Thursday. First thing in the morning, he messaged me. Will you be home today? I told him no. He messages back a few hours later. Hey, are you home? I said, no, I told you I wouldn't be home all day. Are you still coming out? He then told me his truck broke down. He was sending messages like, please don't be upset with me, sweetheart. At this point, I was getting really creeped out. I told him, just come tomorrow. Friday. It's actually my day off, but I woke up and left the house for the day. He messages me. Hey, uh, I'm coming. You're off today, right? I said, yes, but I'm not home. Okay, uh, when will you be home? Mm, I don't know. He messaged me later saying, sorry, babes. I was loading the equipment onto my truck and it fell and broke. Maybe I can come tomorrow. At this point, I was really creeped out, and I told him, never mind, I'm going to find somebody else. Saturday. 
I get off work at around 4 or 5 and check my phone and find multiple messages from him saying that he had cut my grass and I need to come home and give him the money. I told him, no, I'll cash app it to you. He started getting really irate and saying that I need to give him the money now. I told him I would give him the money after I got home and thought the grass was cut. I was honestly really worried he would be waiting at my house, so I got a friend to drive home with me. He wasn't there. I sent him the money, and I thought that was the end of it. Fast forward to two months later. I'm on the phone with my fiancé as I drive to class, and he tells me he has to get off the phone because there's somebody walking down our driveway. I asked what he meant, and he said there was a man walking around in our driveway and front yard. After I got to class, he texted me telling me it was just a man who had come by to promote his lawn care business. I didn't think anything about it, as it had been two months. But later that night, I got home and saw a business card laying on my counter with the name of the man who had been messaging me earlier. I called my fiancé, Mike, at work and asked how the guy had been acting. He said Charles seemed genuinely surprised that a man had come out and asked if he lived alone. I asked Mike if a man had stopped at any other houses, and he replied, Now that I don't know about it, I'm sorry. After he left our house, he just left. Mike said he had seemed really desperate to help around the house and offered to cut the lawn, fix our porch, remove any trash or scrap metal we had around the house, and then ask if we had pests such as bats in our attic or anything. That especially freaked me out as we do have a bat problem, and I had previously posted about it on Facebook. Mike then said what was really weird as Charles was very freaked out about the dog. He heard Max barking from inside and started asking a lot of questions like, Is he big? Does he stay outside or inside? Does he ever go outside? Or is he a stay inside completely? How big is he? Is he nice? Mike chalked it up to him, being scared of dogs. He gave him a brief tour of the outside of the house, and then Charles got in his truck and left. I then told Mike that this was the same guy who had been messaging me earlier in the year and Mike began to freak out. He said that Charles had asked a lot of really specific questions about who all lived here, how long they had lived here, and where they were at at the time. He said he tried to brush him off, but Charles seemed very insistent to know if Mike was the only one in the house. Before he left, Mike specifically asked him if he had cut the lawn here before or something, and maybe was thinking of the last owners, but Charles told him, no, I just happened to be out this way and thought I'd promote my business in the neighborhood. The worst part? I had taken my fiancé's car to work that day, which means my car was in the driveway when Charles stopped by. He thought I was home alone. I didn't contact the police because I thought I might be overreacting. This all happened two days ago, and I really hope that we never meet him again. This happened about two weeks ago. There's a little background, but nothing long-winded. First off, I work the graveyard shift, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., and my weekends are Wednesday and Thursday. None of my local friends knows where I live yet. In our door, we have a wreath that covers the peephole and doorbell, which has since been moved. My wife also was not home when this occurred. She was thankfully at work when this all went down. I got home at around 7 a.m., excited to begin my weekend of gaming and spending time with my wife. You know, the usual. I'm doing my normal routine of eating some breakfast, and then after cracking the bottle of whiskey I bought, look, 7 a.m. is my 5 p.m., so it sounds weird, but for me, it's completely normal. And start up my game. I use a pair of decent noise-canceling headphones when I game so I can't hear much of anything unless I pay attention. At about 8.30 a.m., I hear a knock. I hear this, though, because I'm just sitting in the lobby of the game waiting for my buddy to get back. I ignore it initially and go back to scrolling on Facebook while I'm waiting. 
Not ten seconds later, I hear it again, and then the doorbell rings. I get up now because it might be the landlord or something. Without checking, I unlock the door, and it's pushed open, and I get punched in the head, and I fall to the floor. I get up fairly quickly, and I get up bolt to my room where I have an old Lee Einfield rifle lying against the wall. Project weapon. I grab it, pointed at the intruder as he's unplugging things for my PC. He sees it and yells, Oh, fuck! and bolts out the still open door. I called the police and let the apartment manager know what had just happened. The aftermath. So, the police show up pretty quick and take my statement. I tell them everything that happened. The officer tells me that he's sorry that this had happened and they'll send patrol around once an hour for the next week. They ended the conversation with, if we catch the guy, would you want to press charges for assault? Of course, yes. Okay, that sounds good. Honestly, we're probably not going to find this guy, seeing as nothing was stolen and you weren't injured too badly, meaning I didn't have to be taken to the hospital and not meant in a negative way. We're just going to go ahead and call this case closed. The other officer there asked me about the rifle I used. I told him how it wasn't functional and that since it was so old, I didn't need to get it registered. I still had to show him. Officer 2 pulls the bolt open and does a general inspection and confirms that there isn't a firing pin in the bolt. Turns out, Officer 2 was a weapons enthusiast. Not relevant, but I thought it was pretty cool that a cop from California was so calm about it. So, that's why it's here. To the home invader who gave me a black eye, let's not ever meet again. For starters, this was a very traumatic experience that my family and I went through. Please note, this was very hard to write, and at many times writing this, I had overwhelming flashbacks. Forgive me if it sounds jumbled up. I tried my best to edit it all to make sense. For context, my dad grew up with this man, Bruce, and considered him one of his best friends. Bruce was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in his late teens and my dad, being the kind and caring soul that he is, stepped in to be his guardian. I say that lightly. I mean, he always helped out when Bruce was going through an episode as M's parents were M.I.A. Growing up, Bruce was always around. I saw him as another father figure in my life. He lived in a small town two hours from my city, where we also had a holiday home. So, he was constantly coming up to stay at ours. He was kind, calm, and patient, and also an amazing artist. Almost yearly, Bruce went through phases of refusing to take his medication. This then triggered an intense manic episode, some of which I have witnessed and are frightening to see for a young child who only knew this person as quiet and calm. He would do things and say things far beyond his control and couldn't quite grasp reality. And that's unfortunately where it begins. I was 12 when this happened, so it was around 10 years ago, but still feels so fresh in my mind. Every summer, my family and I would take a trip down to our beach house, Bruce's town. Our little house was a one-bedroom unit where us kids would usually sleep in the lounge. But for Christmas, our parents brought a massive three-person tent for us to sleep in on the front lawn. So while my parents slept up in the house, we got the tent. A week before my dad had to drive back up for work, he got a strange call from Bruce. Although at the time, I didn't know what it was about. I could see the concerned look on my dad's face as he told Bruce, No, I won't do that. After further arguing, my dad hung up and murmured to my mom about something. I'll sort it out. And my dad left. I asked what was wrong because mom's expression turned into worry. She shrugged it off and told me not to worry about it, and that was that. Later that night, I heard my mom talking to my aunt that Bruce is refusing to take his medication unless my dad withdraws money. 
From what I know, my dad is in charge of Bruce's finances and his bank account because Bruce has a meth problem. Bruce has a son who is trying to stay clean from it, and after Bruce tried and failed to get his son to buy him some meth, he turned to my dad who also refused. I totally get it. He's an adult and can make his own decisions, but my dad didn't want to enable his drug problem, right? My dad stepped in to be a guardian of Bruce, so that's his job. This is where everything goes sour. Bruce started threatening to stop taking his medication ever again and that he hadn't been for weeks. He then started threatening to harm my brothers and me. He said to my parents, they trust me, it would be easy. My mom freaks out and tells him she's calling the police on him. The police arrived at the house to see that the whole property was empty. He had fled and was hiding somewhere which made everyone uneasy. Nothing really happened in these next coming weeks, and it was time for my dad to drive back up to the city for work. Mom felt okay staying down with us, and of course, the three kids were oblivious to all the commotion that was going on. So, we were too. Everything is good for the next few nights, with dad gone, and then it starts going downhill. It's around 3.30 a.m. My brothers and I are sound asleep in the tent. My mom up in the house is too fast asleep when she wakes up to a bombing of texts from Bruce. They're all blank, but since this is the first time hearing from Bruce since he threatened her kids, my mom is wide awake in full-blown panic mode. Bruce then rings her. As she answers, he doesn't reply. Instead, he breathes heavenly on the phone for 10 seconds before hanging up. The second time is the same. Mom asks where he is but he hung up on her. He rings the third time saying, back deck, before hanging up. My mom hears a loud bang from the back of the house and quickly calls the police. The only way to the back is going through the front lawn where my brothers and I were sleeping. I don't remember much except being shaken awake by my dad's best friend, who my mom called in tears, and coming into the house to see three police officers standing around. My brothers and I were wide awake now because we were curious at everything going on in the house. And then this happened. My dad came back down for us, and with the news, Bruce's son had come up to him in the city to apologize and confess that he was told to come to murder our whole family in exchange for a large sum of money. My dad was in shock and rushed back down. Bruce was back and hiding again. My mom let everyone who knew him and was close to him know what had happened, and if he did come to them, was to let the police know who will immediately detain him, as he was considered dangerous and mentally unstable. The shittiest thing was one of her supposedly best friends who knew him, let him stay at hers instead of calling authorities. Side note, they have only started talking again recently after mom forgave her. As the summer starts to wind down, we return to the city to find a few terrifying things. My mom and dad came home to one of their bathroom windows smashed and dirty footprints everywhere. For some reason, nothing out of the ordinary had happened until my older brother, an avid cockatiel lover, went out to check our aviary birds to find they were all missing. Not one was in there, and we assumed they must have escaped and flown away until Dad got a nasty surprise opening our barbecue to see all ten of them had been cooked alive. My parents can't prove it was him, but after all that has happened in regard to Bruce, it probably was especially after finding out what Mom's friend did. To make matters worse, our neighbor heard and saw what was going on when we were being broken in, but didn't bother to ring the police or even let us know, and my parents were pissed. She made an awful excuse about being home and never having witnessed something like this. So to Bruce, a man I knew as another father figure in my life, you may have bipolar disorder and you can't help that, but after what you put my family and I through, I hope we never ever meet again.
And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these true Let's Not Meet stories. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourselves a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.
Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>